Welcome to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series by the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. My name is Jill Harper, Vice Chair of Communications on the CIA's Research Council. In this episode, we'll be talking about liquidity risk in fixed income markets with a specific focus on recent experience during the pandemic. On the phone today, we have Anthony DiGenosa. Anthony holds his master's in business administration and is a chartered financial analyst. And Anthony is an institutional portfolio manager with PHNN Institutional, specializing on fixed income. Welcome, Anthony, and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, hi, Joe. Thanks a lot for having me. So let's get right into the liquidity situation of fixed income assets historically and compare those to what we've seen during the pandemic. So what are normal liquidity conditions in the Canadian fixed income market? Yeah, it's a good question. Thanks, Jill. I would say before we get into liquidity, it's worth briefly clarifying how trading works in fixed income markets for those who may not be as familiar. And unlike the equity market, there currently isn't a central exchange or a set of exchanges where bonds are traded. So instead, all trades happen through contacting an investment dealer or several uh, who ends up looking for a buyer or a seller. And the dealer primarily acts as a matchmaker in the situation, matching buyers and sellers. And in return for this service, the dealer takes a small cut from the trade. This is called the bid-ask spread, so to speak. And it's implied in the price paid by the buyer and the price received by the seller, which are different. And so to figure out what price to trade at, investment dealers use comparable recent trades to inform buyers and sellers what a reasonable price would be. You can think of this in a similar vein to how you would be, how much you'd be willing to pay to buy a house or sell your house. You look at similar houses in a geographic region around you or the number of bedrooms, the lot size, etc. So the fixed income market works conceptually in a very similar fashion. And so during times where liquidity is very crunched, and the number of trades that are occurring that can be used as a reference point are very low or non-existent, pricing fixed income securities becomes very different. And I think this really does a good job of introducing the concept of liquidity and, and what it's like in what we would call quote unquote normal market conditions. And so when we think of liquidity, we, we often see there as being four primary components. The first would be, can we transact in the issuer or the issue that we want to? Can we transact in the quantity we want to? And what is the cost to transact that bid-ask spread we referred to earlier? And then lastly, if an investor makes a conscious decision to buy a less liquid or completely illiquid fixed income security, how much yield do they require as compensation for assuming that risk? And so when we think about normal, we, we often think of it as a relative statement because prior to the 0809 great financial crisis, normal would have been different when we think about what normal would have been since then and before the onset of the pandemic. And when I think about what the, the main difference is, it really comes down to the introduction of financial regulations that came uh, around 2010, which have caused the role of investment dealers to change, where they no longer interject themselves into the market to provide liquidity to the same extent they used to. And so my comments really consider what was common since the financial crisis and before the pandemic. And when many people think about liquidity, they're often referring to the cost to transact. And we've talked about it already described as a bid-ask spread. And to just give you an example to, to conceptualize what a normal bid-ask spread would be, we can take a look at two different types of bonds that I think are really common for most people looking at the fixed income market in Canada. And the first uh, is a 10-year duration provincial bond. And let's just assume we wanted to trade 
$10 million of market value. Well, the typical bid-ask spread was about one basis point or 0.01%. And this would imply that within the trade, the buyer would pay a price and the seller would receive a price that were different by about $10,000. And that would result in each the buyer and the seller implicitly paying about $5,000 each to complete the trade. And if we compare that to a similar term corporate bond trading same amount, the typical bid-ask spread was about four to five basis points. And so using our previous example, the price that the buyer would pay and the price the seller would receive would be different by about forty or fifty thousand dollars, implying that each the buyer and the seller paid about twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars each to complete that ten million dollar trade. And so when we think about this cost of trading and we talk about liquidity, we often think about, you know, liquidity just comes at a price in times of stress or or uh, liquidity crisis. And so what increases the cost of trading? Well, the first is the duration of the bond you're trading. A longer bond has a higher cost and a shorter term or shorter mature uh, duration bond is a lower cost. And then the second thing, it really is how wide that bid ask spread. And we've shown in our example that the security type is an important indicator and, and the issuer. So corporate bonds tend to be more expensive to trade as evidenced by a wider bid ask spread compared to provincial government bonds, which on average are also more expensive to trade than federal government bonds that are the typical risk-free asset that we colloquially refer to. And then the second thing would be the size of the trade. So to trade 1 million versus 10 million or $50 million uh, has a, a different cost associated with it, with larger trades being more expensive to complete. And then the last would be just the broader liquidity environment. In a more liquidity strained environment where prices are more volatile, there's more risk for an investment dealer to buy bonds and provide liquidity and hold those bonds on their balance sheet than there has been historically. And so uh, that becomes cost prohibitive for them and uh, is very risky. And so they need to be compensated to either take on that risk themselves or arrange a trade between two parties. We've talked about the bid-ask spread, and I think that's what a lot of people discuss when they, when they discuss liquidity. But I think it's also the ability to transact in the desired issuer at the desired amount you want. It's very important, particularly in a liquidity strained environment. Okay, so focusing a little bit more on recent experience, what happened in the first quarter of 2020? Can you give any examples of how liquidity for Canadian fixed income market changed during the pandemic? Yeah, for sure. And um, I would say that the first quarter of 2020 was largely characterized by a dramatic series of events that started as a credit market sell-off and ultimately resulted in a liquidity crisis. And going into the pandemic, we had indications that the average investor was overweight corporate bonds heading into the pandemic. And so they stood to benefit or get hurt by the value of investors placed on risk premiums. So a risk-off environment would have hurt them and a risk-on would have helped them. And so this series of events caused investors to reprice risk premiums and, and a sell-off and credit markets that turned into a, a liquidity crisis ensued. And, and we can really think of the spread of COVID-19 acting as the initial catalyst. And it didn't even have to reach North American shores, just the spread of it globally severely disrupted global supply chains. It had a detrimental impact on travel and ultimately investor confidence. And something that is probably talked about less now that the oil, the price of oil has recovered, but was a, a material amplifier in the situation was an oil price war that transpired between Russia and Saudi Arabia. And this really exacerbated an already strained environment for crude oil and markets priced in a sharp and sustained drop in the price of oil. And this 
acted to amplify the impacts of uncertainty that were really making their way throughout financial markets in the context of a spread of a potential pandemic at the time. And anything with commodity exposure was hurt. So I think the most natural place to go first would be corporate bonds, where um, issuers had exposure to commodity prices. They saw their bond spreads widen quite materially. But in addition to those corporations, it was also provinces. So more specifically, the province of Alberta, where their economy has a close link to broader commodity prices, uh, was also hit quite hard. And so in this environment, investors found themselves in a position where they could see financial hardship on the horizon. And I think similar to our personal lives, where we're less likely to sell our house first when we're in financial hardship. Instead, market participants started generating their liquidity through the most liquid markets first. So think about the largest, most liquid provincial bond issuers and the high, higher quality and most liquid corporate bond issuers. And this generally represents a demand for cash and a flight to quality, which I think is very visible through what happened in the 10-year Government of Canada bond yield, which at the end of 2019 was around 1.7%, and it fell 100 basis points over the quarter to end March at about 71 basis points. And it even touched as low as 54 basis points early in March. So a pretty dramatic demand for Government of Canada bonds. And so investors demanded those bonds, pushed up the prices, pulled down the yield. And you know these numbers where we ended are very low by historical measures. And I think represent both that significant demand for the safety of federal government bonds, but also expectations by the market that in the context of what was going on in the pandemic, government bond yields would remain very low for quite some time. And so I think with this context, we can look at a high level what the reaction was both from policymakers and investors. And investors really did continue to sell risk assets of all kinds, driving prices lower, credit spreads wider, and that cost to transact, that bid-ask spread moved significantly higher. And they were really selling fixed income assets across the board without discrimination at this point, not just the liquid bonds or not just their corporate bonds. And they were really, number one, de-risking portfolios. So as I mentioned earlier, having been overweight risk assets and specifically corporate bonds heading into the pandemic, they needed to reduce the amount of risk that they were taking in their fixed income allocation. But at a total portfolio level, we had also seen equity markets that had significantly underperformed the fixed income market. And so investors with a long-term strategic asset mix saw their fixed income allocations become disproportionately large compared to that long-term target. And so they demanded liquidity to sell their fixed income assets and reinvest it in other parts of the portfolio, for example, equities. And, and these two components, they really came together. And this demand for liquidity happened over a very short period of time, think days or a week and a half, two weeks, so a very short period of time. And so as a result, the ability to transact in, in securities that you wanted to, in the size that you wanted to, became very difficult. There were very few transactions happening in the secondary market, particularly in the corporate bond market, where many bonds were not trading at all. And we call it a, a one-way market where sellers significantly outnumbered buyers. And so trading really occurred in very few issues. And with price being a process of discovery and very few trades to use for reference, it became very difficult to find out what a fair price was. And many sellers ended up having to take whatever price buyers were willing to pay. And then if we looked at the primary market, issuers coming to market to borrow 
money and issue debt. They were able to complete deals, but they really had to entice investors. And, and we saw that in the yields that they were offering investors. They were offering a higher yield than they likely would have otherwise in a, a less liquidity strained environment. And we call this new issue concessions. The new issue concessions had increased quite dramatically in, in a short period of time. And so you put all this together and what we saw was it had the effect of a very fast and bold response from both the federal government and the Bank of Canada. And just to provide a couple of quick examples in the provincial and corporate bond markets about, you know, what, I, what I'm referring to is, you know, when we think about the yields that an investor demands to take on the credit and liquidity risk of owning a provincial or corporate bond, we often look at the extra yield that you earn over and above what you'd earn on a similar term government of Canada bond. And we call that the yield spread. And so we can look at how much those credit spreads, those yield spreads widened over this period. And if we look at the provincial bond market, which is typically a, a very liquid uh, part of the bond market and provincial issuers are quite high quality in Canada, those bond spreads widened by somewhere between 50 and 60 basis points in the first quarter in the 10-year sector. And in the corporate spaces, it was even wider, 120 to 140 basis points. So this is really investors selling their riskier assets, driving the prices down and the yield up. And ultimately, you can view that as investors demanding a much higher yield premium to assume those risks in that market environment. And so in addition to this credit spread widening, the cost to transact was also increasing significantly. So we talked earlier about how in normal times in the provincial bond market within the 10-year sector, it's about one basis point in bid-ask spread that you could expect uh, to pay for a $10 million trade. But this increased to three to four basis points, so a tripling or a quadrupling, and even higher in, in some very particular cases. But for, for the purposes of this conversation, three to four basis points, bringing that $10,000 cost up to thirty or $40,000 to complete that $10 million trade. And the corporate market was even more severe where we saw spreads widen out to 15 or 20 basis points, effectively increasing the cost of trade to 80 or $100,000. So pretty dramatic increases in the cost of trade and, make it, and, and it becoming very difficult to trade. And I think it's important to note that with low trading volumes that occurred, it was very difficult to know what a reasonable price was to either pay or receive for bonds that you were trading. And so previous price indications, like the real estate concept that we talked about earlier, became almost meaningless in this environment. And so trading occurred almost exclusively in the most liquid issuers and generating liquidity, even in the provincial bond market, became very difficult and very expensive. So how is this different from what we saw during the financial crisis in 2008-2009? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I think prior to the 0809 crisis, investment dealers, they held an inventory of bonds, and this ultimately allowed them to act as a provider of liquidity during times of stress. But since then, we've seen financial regulations come into place, and it's made this act significantly less profitable and uh, lowered the incentive for uh, investment dealers to take risk on their own balance sheets to act in this capacity. And so during times of market turmoil, the risk required to act as a liquidity provider is, is punitive or prohibitive now. And so the dealers now act primarily as matchmakers, connecting buyers and sellers. And it's not a perfect example, but I think conceptually, I think of a car dealership. So you have a car dealership with new cars and used cars from clients coming in and selling their used vehicles to buy a new vehicle. And prior to the great financial crisis, this was a lot like what fixed income dealers would act like. They had new issues coming to market. They had 
uh, trades in the secondary market, and they were able to build an inventory of bonds that they thought they could profit from buying and selling. But regulations that were put into place uh, in early, like around 2010, I believe, um, they basically made this um, less profitable for the investment dealers and, and reduced the incentive to do so. And so as a result, it's now the investors holding the vast majority of bonds, so large investment managers and public pension plans and, and investors of that nature that become the liquidity providers in a liquidity crunch. And when we think about the impact this had during the pandemic compared to what we saw during the 0809 crisis, it really was how quickly and how sharply credit spreads moved and liquidity dried up. We saw liquidity dry up very quickly and we saw credit spreads widen to a very dramatic extent, as I said earlier, over the matter of a few days or a couple of weeks, which was a lot quicker than we saw during the financial crisis. And spreads, they didn't reach the, high, the highs that we saw during the great financial crisis. They still moved significantly higher, as I mentioned earlier, but not quite as high, but they did so in a much quicker fashion. And I think that's one side effect of this change in the relationship of dealers in, in their market making and liquidity providing activities. And I think the second thing that was dramatically different was just how quickly and how boldly both the federal government and the central central bank acted. Um, you know, they acted to an extent we hadn't seen before, and uh, they really wanted to ensure that illiquidity did not permeate throughout the entire financial system. And, you know, maybe the last thing I think is worth mentioning is I've been speaking about this almost historically, we're comparing two periods, but... I'd say we're not necessarily out of the woods yet. There's market turbulence that may still be yet to come. I think those of us with kids or those of us considering returning to our physical office spaces uh, with the potential of a second wave coming, I, I think there's the potential for more market turbulence to happen. So I just think, say it's prudent to think about us moving through an environment as opposed to having already been through it. Fair enough. So you mentioned interventions by the Bank of Canada. What is the Bank of Canada doing and what are they intending behind their actions? Mm -hmm. No, very good question. And I, I think it's very topical right now because it's, it's unprecedented in, in Canada. I would say that the Bank of Canada's immediate goal during the onset of the pandemic was to really bridge what were extraordinarily difficult times for Canadians by making borrowing and access to credit available and um, affordable. And so the first thing they did was they dropped their overnight lending rate in a series of three actions, 50 basis points each, to, to bring it down to their effective lower bound of a quarter of a percent. So that's 150 basis points decline in a very short period of time. And they've clearly stated that while they've considered a negative interest rate policy, it's not the appropriate course of action at this time. So that, that was their first action was to lower their overnight lending rate. But for the first time in history, they also introduced what are called large-scale asset purchase programs. And they're more commonly referred to as quantitative easing policies. But what they're really doing is they're going to the market and purchasing bonds and holding those bonds on their own balance sheet. And they're really acting as a buyer of last resort, so to speak. And the goal of going through this exercise is to ensure that financial markets continue to function and capital is accessible to individuals, companies, and governments like provincial governments, municipal governments to respond to the pandemic. And I think 
perhaps one of the most important functions that the bank can serve when its inflation target is in question is to support the normal functioning of markets to the extent that they can and is required. Because we can easily forget how interconnected the fixed income market is to, for example, the ability for businesses to make their payroll or financial institutions to renew mortgages and just broadly speaking, keep the economy solvent. And so this program that they've embarked upon spans almost the entire fixed income market in Canada. They're purchasing commercial paper, corporate bonds, provincial bonds, real return bonds, federal agency guaranteed mortgage bonds, and a number of other things in an attempt to ensure that the plumbing of our financial system remains intact. So do you think these interventions are working the way they expected and influencing investor behavior appropriately? Yeah, I think absolutely it's been effective. There's a few ways that we can see this as well. And I think the first is that it's encouraged investors to continue to take risk. It's maintained the functioning of the market and it's allowed issuers to borrow money. And so as a result, we've seen trading in the secondary market pick up significantly. Bid-ask spreads have declined near the quote-unquote normal levels we saw pre-pandemic. And the amount of issuance has been very high. Just to give you an example, the amount of issuance in the investment grade corporate bond market so far this year has been over $80 billion. And that's about 26% higher than it was at the same time last year. And last year was the second highest level of issuance we've seen on record. And within the provincial market, the provinces collectively have issued almost $100 billion since April alone. And that, that's a, a large part of their fiscal year targets. And they're only a third the way through their fiscal year. So we've seen borrowers come to market, and and that's been met with strong demand by investors. And it's pushed up the price of those bonds, lowering their yield spread. And this combined with low risk-free yields, so Government of Canada bond yields, it means that the cost of borrowing for these issuers has come down. And I think that's one of the main intentions behind these purchase programs from, from the bank. And I think it's notable here that it's the gesture of these programs more than the size of these programs that has had an impact largely on the cost of borrowing for for provinces and corporations and and so i'll talk about very briefly about the corporate bond purchase program and the provincial bond purchase program because they're the two programs that are most commonly spoken about and so they both are expected to span about a year and the bank of canada has agreed or chosen to buy about 10 billion dollars worth of investment grade corporate bonds in canada they've outlined some specific criteria about you know, which bonds that they'll be willing to purchase, et cetera. And they've agreed to buy about $50 billion worth of provincial bonds. I think it's notable that these are big numbers, 10 and $50 billion. That is a lot of money. But I think in the context of the size of these markets, they're, they're quite modest. And so I think when we look at what happened to credit spreads in the corporate and provincial uh, bond markets, I think we can see that it was right after the announcement of these programs that we saw spreads tighten. And and what that means is that investors were buying these bonds, driving up their prices and pulling their yield spreads down. And and that happened very quickly. And and this happened well ahead of time before the bank actually even started purchasing bonds according to these programs. And so I think that really demonstrates that the bank stepping in and acting as a buyer of less resort, it's a sentiment that has had so far the greatest impact on markets and and not necessarily the actions quite yet. And what about some longer term impacts of the Bank of Canada's interventions and policies? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Another great question. I think the honest answer is we really, we don't know exactly. And in the near term, 
what we have experienced is distortion and bond yields and stock prices. And while these programs help restore functioning during a crisis, they also cause the prices of riskier assets to rise with the expectation that there's always going to be a buyer of last resort. However, I think longer term, the underlying risks that existed remain in the system. Companies continue to take on more debt, even as they have less cash to service that debt. And we can think of this as higher risk that companies become insolvent. I also think another topic that comes up a lot is inflationary, uh, the inflationary impacts of these purchase programs, which are also unclear. Historically, we can look to the Bank of Japan, the ECB, the, the Federal Reserve in the US. They've all embarked on quantitative easing programs, which historically have not led to runaway inflation. But we don't know what the inflationary impacts of these programs will be or, or ultimately how they're going to be financed. So for example, is it going to be higher taxes? We don't know yet. And I think lastly, with the government involvement in financial markets, we continue to see regulations that came out of the previous financial crisis have an impact on trading today. And so I think it's useful and constructive to consider that there is potential for future regulatory requirements, which could impact how companies raise or use capital. And, and that's something that, that could affect operations and trading. So shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about what this means for portfolio managers. So starting off, what do you think the potential impact of this big decrease in liquidity might be on management of Canadian fixed income portfolios? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's several challenges in managing a fixed income portfolio, particularly in the face of what have been drastically changing liquidity conditions. And I think the first one comes down to the fact that it's far more costly to transact and meet client redemption requests. And this ultimately is a cost that affects the client's return experience. And it's especially true if a portfolio has very few of the most liquid securities in it. So think Government of Canada bonds and to a lesser extent, provincial bonds. And I think secondly, it makes repositioning portfolios as a portfolio manager more challenging. So even trading Government of Canada bonds can be more costly and more difficult in times of extreme stress. And so I think finally, when, when we think about very illiquid markets where bonds are simply not trading or where there's a lack of price discovery, it's difficult to determine what the appropriate price is for bonds. And so, you know, it begs the question, will you be able to trade at a level similar to where the bonds are being quoted? Is the index provider able uh, or are they providing a true and accurate pricing of, of uh, prices and market values? Are they even able to? And, and lastly, really just pricing becomes the hardest issue to mitigate in the context of, of these markets and, and these environments. Given that this is so challenging, are there tools that are available to help managers negotiate such an environment? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I think we tend to focus on making investments that reward us for the risks we take. And oftentimes, when everything's going well, investors tend to focus too much on chasing the reward and not enough time on assessing the risk. But it's important that before we react in a crisis environment, that we structure a portfolio for both times of normalcy and times of crisis. And the first way that we need to do that is we need to ensure that there's a sufficient allocation to the most liquid securities, which allow managers to fund redemption requests and reposition either their risk exposure, like their exposure to credit securities, or even their interest rate sensitivity, their duration profile. And I think that being said, an allocation to less liquid or even completely illiquid securities is appropriate. And it, it, it's appropriate as long as 
number one, you're being compensated for that illiquidity, and number two, that you size your position appropriately, particularly in the context of the broader portfolio. And when we think about portfolio construction, it's important to ground our decisions in, in broad experience over time and not focus too heavily on the most recent past or a specific period in time. So it's important to stress test the portfolio's liquidity using a variety of uh, worst case scenarios, so to speak. And so, for example, what if there was no liquidity in the corporate bond market? Or what if provincial bid-ask spreads moved to historic wise? How would you fund redemptions and how would you be able to reposition the portfolio? And I think from a practical perspective, investment managers uh, would desire regular contact with their clients about liquidity needs during a crisis. And this really comes down to a better experience for, for investors, because the more time that a manager has, the easier it is to generate liquidity in an illiquid environment. So I think just a matter of practically speaking, that's, that's one way that we can manage and negotiate through those types of environments. So do you think there are any lessons learned from this particular experience? Yeah, absolutely. I think we can start with what we've seen. And so we started this experience through the pandemic, having gone through an extended period of extremely low Government of Canada bond yields. And, and that resulted in investors reaching for yield into riskier asset classes. We saw significant demand for investment-grade corporate debt, both from our clients and from what we know of the broader market, other investors as well. And the lowest quality areas have seen significant demand. So as an example, the number of triple B rated companies issuing large amounts in recent years has been quite notable. Triple Bs represent a, a large portion of the corporate bond market in Canada now compared to where they were even 10 years ago. Now, I, I don't want to paint this totally as a bad thing. I think having a larger number of issues in the market, it diversifies the opportunity set for investment managers. But I think we also need to look at the fact that there's, there's been continued significant flows into high yield or, or junk bonds, which have significantly less liquidity than investment grade. And as investors try to earn a reasonable rate of return on their fixed income, there's really a few things that they need to consider. And, and that really starts with the compensation for taking on higher credit risk and lower liquidity. So how does your position size fit into the broader portfolio? How will you react in a crisis situation? And in particular, over the last 10 years, uh, where we've seen investors take on more of these risks, including the introduction of leverage by investing in derivatives, now that can be very difficult to manage in a liquidity situation. And I think it's important for investors to have a plan for this type of situation, particularly those uh, who have leverage. And it's challenging to know how to prevent these, these crises and these situations. I think the, the current has largely been exacerbated by regulatory changes that have had a significant impact on market liquidity. And I, I don't think that that regulatory environment is likely to change. And so I think to be more prepared, portfolio managers need to think about sources and uses of liquid positions in their portfolios and communicate with their clients on, on what their liquidity needs are. So you mentioned compensation for taking on liquidity risk. Do you think this compensation, or maybe we could call it a liquidity premium, is generally underestimated? Yeah, that's a good question. I think like many things, and in particular like credit risk, there's a spectrum of illiquidity risk or an illiquidity premium. And I think one of the most purest forms we can look at is the yield an investor earns to buy a federal agency bond as opposed to what they'd earn a similar term nominal Government of Canada bond. And what you'll notice when you look into the market, for example, for a federal agency bond, historically before the pandemic, maybe more specifically towards the end of 2019, 
you were earning somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 35 basis points extra yield compared to what you'd earn on a federal government Canada bond. So you're taking on the same credit risk. It's essentially guaranteed by the federal government, but you're buying a security that doesn't trade as often in the secondary market. So that extra 30 to 35 basis points is ultimately compensation for lower liquidity that investors demand to buy those bonds. But I think when we, when we, that's reasonable, but if we go beyond that and we think about private assets, which have become a lot more commonplace uh, over the past 10 years, like commercial mortgage lending or private debt, the illiquidity premium needs to be significantly higher, given that these are not assets that can be readily traded even on a good day. So to ensure that the compensation you receive for holding them and the credit quality uh, that you're taking on, you have to be willing to hold these securities no matter what the environment. And it's hard to quantify exactly what that figure is as it's very security and, and scenario specific. Okay, so shifting gears a little bit once more, let's talk a little bit about what this means for pensioners in a retirement trust. So what is the role of liquidity in the construction of an investment portfolio and how has this changed with the recent pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great question. And I think whether it's a pension plan or, or other uh, investors that have defined obligations that they need to make, make, meeting those payment obligations should be priority number one. Now, overall, there is a role for less liquid assets in an investment portfolio. Less liquid assets, as we just talked about, they tend to pay a yield premium for their less liquid nature. And broadly speaking, fixed income in particular, it's not homogeneous. So even many securities that are in the benchmark during times of crisis, they, they don't trade. Um, not all bonds are created equal. So there is definitely a role for less liquid assets in a portfolio, especially considering most investors don't require 100% of the portfolio on demand. So when we think about this in, in context, there's an opportunity cost to liquidity and investors should seek to extract some premium available for less liquid assets, just like they would for any other risk asset. But I think liquidity should be a key consideration in the portfolio construction process, and it should be assessed. The portfolio should have enough liquidity in a liquidity event without having to change its asset mix. And a crisis, for example, is a great reminder about the importance of this. And in the context of opportunity, through these crises, we often see spreads widening. And so that compensation for liquidity risk can improve quite dramatically. However, it's important to remember that portfolio construction is a trade-off. Uh, it's really a trade-off between three main desired attributes. And so the first would be risk management, enhancing returns, and lastly, liquidity. And when we think about asset mix, the emergence of private assets and derivatives over the last 10 years have really caused some stakeholders to suffer from a lack of liquidity in, in pursuit of those extra returns. And, you know, when we think about those who have maintained sufficient liquidity in contrast, they've been able to take advantage of the rebound in markets and also benefit from opportunities that come from dislocations in the market. So what do you think the consequences are of bad liquidity management? Yeah, I think the first one that comes to mind is not being able to meet pension plan or payment obligations, as I mentioned before. But uh, the other main risks would be losses on your assets and also material changes to the structural portfolio exposures that can lead to poor financial health of pension plans and their sponsors. And then finally, one last question. Given that in the current environment, bond yields are near their historic lows, what do you think investors should expect for future returns and what might they consider when selecting asset mixes? 
Yeah, that, that's a great question. One that we get um, often and, and one that we think of often ourselves. When I think about returns in the fixed income market, they're a lot more mathematical, at least from my perception, than something like the equity market. And when we look at what's happened in the fixed income market, for example, uh, just to the end of July, if we looked at the universe bond index for the 12-month period ending in July of 2020, it returned 9%. And the long bond index to the same endpoint over the same period returned 14%. These are very strong returns. And I look at this situation ultimately as pulling future returns into the present. And that means that the yield to maturity in those indexes and the bonds that they represent have come down quite dramatically. And so that's not very inspiring when we think about the prospect for future returns. And so, you know, investors can look to credit and liquidity spreads as a source of improving returns to to some extent in the domestic market. So credit and liquidity spreads widened dramatically in the first quarter, but since then they've also come back in quite markedly and they still remain slightly above long-term averages, but they have come down quite a lot. And so what we're seeing, and, and this is really a concept that, you know, started before the pandemic, but is certainly top of mind um, going through this pandemic is many investors are considering what they can expect from their domestic portfolios and what other sectors of the North American fixed income markets can they incorporate into their asset mix? So is it private debt? Is it commercial mortgage lending? And then even extending that to global fixed income. Are there uh, emerging market debt to leverage loans or, or even um, something as simple as incorporating global investment grade corporate bonds? So there's a number of options that are available both to seek higher returns, but also to diversify your risk exposure globally. And I think conceptually, that's really um, what we've seen and and what I think investors should be looking at uh, in the future. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today, Anthony, and for sharing your insights. Thanks for having me, Jill. I appreciate your time. As a reminder, make sure to subscribe to the Seeing Beyond Risk podcast series. We now have over four dozen podcasts published, and we have other interesting podcasts exploring the impacts of COVID-19 coming shortly. My name is Jill Harper, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Seeing Beyond Risk.